Today in the Owner Suite, I'm joined by Nigel Eccles, the founder of FanDuel and Starstock, to talk about his vision for the future of a real-time stock market for trading cards. You've been invited to the Owner Suite, where we get down to business with the movers and shakers in trading cards, NFTs, rare collectibles, and other alternative assets. Click the subscribe button so you can keep coming back. Now welcome Jeff Wilson, the sports card investor. Hello, and welcome to the Owner Suite. Joining us in the suite today is Nigel Eccles, the founder of FanDuel, which you all know is the unicorn site in the daily fantasy sports world and now the sports gambling world. We're going to talk to Nigel about what it was like to found a company that turned into an absolute runaway success story. But Nigel's back at it again now with the founding of Starstock. A year ago, Starstock launched and aimed to become an online marketplace for trading cards that allowed you to buy and sell cards in real time, much like the stock market. And they've had great success and growth over the last year. So we're gonna talk to Nigel about that journey and lessons that he's learned along the way, the best business advice he has received and suggestions that he would have for entrepreneurs who are trying to start new businesses or launch new products. Before we get to Nigel, I want to remind everybody that the Owner Suite is brought to you by my growth agency, 352. At 352, Jeff and his team work with growth stage and enterprise companies to drive new revenue. They're experts at bringing your business to new customers and markets, building and launching digital products, and pioneering new ventures. Learn what they can do to grow your business by visiting growwith352.com. That's growwith352.com. 352, let's do what's next. Nigel, welcome to the owner suite. Thank you, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Real excited to hear more about the story with FanDuel and especially Starstock and speculate a little bit on the future of the trading card industry. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit about your backstory. Where did you grow up and how did you get into entrepreneurship to begin with? Yeah, so... Um born and brought up in Northern Ireland, um, sort of in the, I was born in the seventies. Um, I, uh, went to university in Scotland, but joined my first startup in this kind of dot-com boom, sort of late nineties. Uh, that was actually a, an online betting exchange called Flutter. And I, I just loved the experience sort of the highs and the, and dealing with the lows and just sort of product development. Um, that was kind of the start. And so that I actually went to consultancy for a bit after that, but really knew my heart was back in startups. And so, uh, in 2007 left that, uh, to start the company that, that would become FanDuel. So what was that like? So you had worked in startups and you obviously enjoyed that type of environment, but how do you make the leap from just simply working on working in a startup to saying, okay, I'm ready to go out and do this on my own. Yeah. Um, it's funny you can <clears throat> i think you can get a little sort of blase about it in retrospect but I, I strongly remember it was like a terrifying experience like i had you know at this stage i was in my i guess my early 30s i <clears throat> um or mid 30s i was married i had two kids um and um i had a corporate job which paid really well i had a really large mortgage and I was bored out of my mind. Uh, and like, I remember the head of HR 
sort of was like, oh, you know, just keep your nose clean and, you know, you'll like, you can stay here till retirement. And I was just like, you know, wanted to blow my brains out. I was like, that is the very last thing I could ever imagine wanted to be doing. And, you know, that was a deep frustration. And I was having a lot of like sort of product ideas that I wanted to work on. And so I was sort of doing things in the evenings, in the afternoon or in the in, in weekends and connecting with some of the developer community in Edinburgh, which was where I was living at the time. And eventually it just hit the point where I was like, look, I just got to do this. And we were going to go out and pitch investors. And I knew it, they were never going to take it seriously if I had like a full time job. Um, and so I remember the moment where basically my wife, who's much generally much more risk averse, was like, look, you should just do it. Like. She knew I was really difficult to live with because I was really frustrated in my current job. And um, whenever she said do it, I was like, oh my God, this this is going to really happen. <laughs> uh, That's exciting. But, yeah, it was exciting, but it was, it was genuinely terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a lot harder to take that risk when you've got the wife and the two kids like you had. It's easier when I started my first company. Well, actually, I started my first company in high school, but my my the company 352, which I've had for many years, I started uh, right while I was in college and coming out of college. And so it's a lot easier to take the risk then. You have a lot less to lose. But every year that goes by, there's more and more risk associated with, you know, with with taking the entrepreneurial leap. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. And I've had friends who wanted to do it and they've sort of like, I'm just going to push it off. And very few of them have ever done it. I'm like, look, once you start getting like a six-figure salary, you know, your costs will start to meet your 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 salary. And, you know, you might think you more in the bank, but actually you've got more liabilities and it gets harder than harder. Yeah, yeah, I, the sooner the better. So if anyone out there is watching and is thinking about doing it, the sooner the better, because honestly, every every day, every week, every year that goes by, it only gets more tough. So you got to make the leap. You got to make the leap now. Uh, so you made that leap and and you made that leap into FanDuel. What gave you the idea for FanDuel? How did that originate? Yeah, so FanDuel wasn't the first idea. Uh, the first idea was actually uh, what you would call a prediction market, uh, play money prediction market where you could predict the outcomes of, of events. And that consumers loved it. Like it was really successful, probably one of the most successful product launches I've ever done. Journalists loved it. Journalists love writing about news. Um, the problem was it just didn't have a very good business model. And we were like, okay, how would we turn this into like a paid product? And, you know, what we realized was a paid product looked like betting because you're going to like bet on an outcome. And we sort of looked at that. And then we also noticed that sports was the category that was doing best, even though we didn't really focus on it that much. Like the sports vertical was like 70% of the traffic. And so we said, okay, we want to build a product like this. Um, it looks like sports is going to be the most natural vertical what can we do? And we then came to fantasy sports and said, look, fantasy sports is, you know, super popular, but hadn't really seen any innovation in about 20 years. Like I used to joke that the biggest innovation, like there was the web, but before that it was the fax machine, you know, it really hadn't, the, the products really hadn't changed that much since 2009 from what they were in 2000. So we thought, well, what if we made it much, you know, much faster um, and, and like fully mobile optimized and what if we launched a product like that and had real cash prizes? That was the idea. Um, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, it, I don't think it was really that uh, sort of deep idea. It was like kind of like make something faster and let people win money. Like 
people like that. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the idea is like people like beer, make beer. <laughs> Sometimes you know? the best entrepreneurial ideas are are simple, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was, you know, in retrospect, it was simple. Like people wanted it to be easier, faster with real prizes. Give people what they want. Give people what they want. Now, was FanDuel the name in your head from day one? Uh, it So it was actually my co-founders who named it. Um, they, you know, the first the prediction market we spent weeks maybe even a month naming the company and it was really painful and um with FanDuel I think they got me out of the office and then uh and then they came back and said we've got the demand and we've got the name and I was like okay seems okay <laughs> but that was kind of like that was it so we didn't do it we didn't spend any time on the name like the guys just sort of came up with it pretty quickly and boom we were off and so today, as we sit here, what about 14 years removed from your decision to take the leap, uh, daily fantasy sports is a gigantic category, right? And back then it wasn't even called that, I'm sure. You you essentially were defining a brand new category within the fantasy sports world. Yeah, so we essentially created a category. Um, and yes, yeah, so there's several million people play daily fantasy sports that Daily fantasy leaders, FanDuel, and then DraftKings. <clears throat> now I also lead in the sports betting market. FanDuel is the number one player. It has over 40% market share, you know, as in operates in every state right, that is where it's been legalized. So it's pretty incredible, right? This incredible journey. FanDuel launched in summer 2009. So it's, it's around 12 years. So it's under 12 years since it uh, started. And when you launched FanDuel, so summer 2009, when you went live to the public, how big was your team at that point? Five, <laughs> five people. Okay, so the five, five co-founders, and so the and so so you got five a founding team of five people together. I assume, what what were the roles? It was some was someone kind of the technologist and someone more this the business person. Um, basically, through two engineers, designer, um, uh, head of marketing, uh, and myself. So I then, remember, I remember my co-founder said to me. You should maybe learn coding because we just don't think you're going to be that busy. Like this is, <laughs> they were kind of serious. Was, I was pretty busy <laughs> from the start. Did you start, did you have success from the beginning? Did it start to scale right away or did it take you some time to find traction? No, it, it, there's a story that I sometimes share that um, early on um, our, our uh, head of marketing was found it really hard to like convert people and sell people. and. I did like a financial model and stuff. And I said, look, I've figured out that as long as we can get two new paying users a day, then we're okay. Like this is like early, right? We're, we just need to convert two. And I'll tell you, there was many days were not okay days <laughs> in those early days. Like it was, you know, we were converting people hand to hand, you know, um, you know, basically at the stage of like calling people to like come and try it. It was very... <clears throat> It was very, very slow initially. One of the problems was that the very first version of the product was more of a snake draft. And that just wasn't nearly as popular. Uh, we we ran that for a couple of months and then we converted to a salary cap and we saw automatically like a sort of 10x improvement. Yeah, it's that's really, that's a great story from a couple of aspects. So first of all, I think it's easy for people to see a company like FanDuel today and say, oh, well, that was, you know, just such an incredible runaway smash success. How could you go wrong? 
But here we are learning that in the early days of FanDuel, you were struggling to get customers. There were days when you couldn't even get two customers signed up, right? So that people, you know, people see these big success stories, but a lot of times those successes, those overnight successes are actually, you know, 10 years in the making, which, you know, with FanDuel didn't take 10 years, but it took a while. Yeah, like over that, honestly, there's very few periods I can point to and I can say, that was a period where we felt we were being really successful. Like a very, there was kind of moments there, but most of that time, sounds quite horrifying, but most of that time we were like, we were running out of money. The product wasn't working. Marketing wasn't acquiring users. Uh, we were running through legal issues. We had horrible competitive situation, you know? So most of the time we were really kind of under the gun. Um, and so it, it, even when we started the like, okay, this is really working, we were under, you know, as a company, under a lot of pressure. So it was not an easy startup to to scale. Welcome to startup life. <laughs> but uh, but you know, you also had a good good mention there as part of your story that I think is a really interesting nugget for people out there starting new products as well, which is that oftentimes it's one little tweak that can sometimes be the difference between, you know, you being you you not finding traction and then you suddenly finding traction your stake your snake draft story there converting that over to the salary cap was that for you a lot of startups look back in their history and they find that one little thing that really started to make the difference of course i think the key uh with running a successful product with starting a successful product is give yourself lots of chances give yourself lots of at bats try a lot of different things because you don't you don't know what that one thing will be. And it, and it's easy to look back on that and say, well, that was lucky. But the only reason why the luck fell in your favor is because I'm sure you tried a whole bunch of different things. And so then, yes, one of them finally did work out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I was speaking to somebody yesterday and I was saying like, it, you know, if I have a special ability, it's like, you know, it's an ability to stay enthusiastic despite, you know, e eating a lot of failure, shall we say, because Yes, that was that was a you know that was lucky or was that lucky? We did a lot of things that didn't work. Like I, you know, we did a lot of innovations that users didn't love, and um, you know, you just then have to stumble on one. If one of them really works, that's a really notable one. We had some other notable ones, but we also did a lot of things that just didn't work, and we had to either roll them back or we just kept them, but it wasn't really significant. Yeah, and 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 yeah, and that's it. But it's constant testing, constant prodding, uh, and staying really close with your users to to be able to monitor what's actually connecting with them and working and not working. That that can be the real difference in success. Yeah, just one one other thing that we really discovered is like just having a really deep understanding of your users and being really willing to talk to them and let them tell you things that are like uncomfortable, like, like that your product stinks <laughs> or, you know, that, that's, that can be a real skill set. Cause when you spend a lot of time on your product, you start to really think, oh, this is perfect. It's very easy to be defensive about your product and, and being defensive in front of users is a really bad idea. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. You got it. You got to take the feedback, the good with the bad, stay close to your users. And if you stay close enough to your users, they'll often help, help you find your way. Um, and so that's that's a wonderful lesson too. So I know your time at FanDuel, there were some challenges that you ran into with with some of the investors, some of the money that had come into the company, probably some good lessons here as well for founders out there to be thinking about what happened through that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, over the period of time to grow the company, we obviously raised quite a lot of money. We raised about 450 million. Um, and we, you know, as we brought investment, we sort of built out the board with those investors. Um, what happened in, in 2018, like to be blunt, is that those investors defrauded uh, the founders and employees. And, and the way they did it was they effectively sold the company to themselves um, at a price that it meant that they eliminated all of the ordinary or common shareholders. And so what's very typical in a, in a venture by company is you have a preference share, um, which is investors get preference shares, and then you have common shareholders, which is founders and employees. Um, those preference shares are very typically, which is called a pref stack. And so this the first X million goes to the the preference shareholders and then the remainder is shared between the founders, employees and those investors. Uh, we had a preference stack of 559 million. And so, uh, and this was, this happened after myself, my co-founders had left the company. In fact, it was about six months. What they really did was they, they merged it with a, another company. And then they said, in exchange for um, this new company is going to buy uh, FanDuel and they're going to give it uh, this new stock and the new stock was called uh, Pandico. We're going to get 60% of Pandico. What is the value of 60% of Pandico? And they said, it's 559 million, right? Exactly the same as our pref stack. Um, and the other interesting thing is, well, who is Pandico? Well, this is an entity of which they are on the board of. And so basically we have them as the buyer and them as the seller, deeply, deeply conflicted. And funnily enough, this buyer basically decided that the value of what we were being given was 559 million. Um, so that's a and that's basically a breach of your fiduciary duty. And it's a very important one if you're a founder and investor to understand that if you are on the board of a company, um, while you might be an investor, you have to act in the interests of the shareholders, right? Uh, of all the shareholders, not just your own narrow interests. Um, and so when you do, you're breaching your fiduciary duty, your responsibility to all shareholders. Um, and so this thing that they said was worth 559 million. Uh, only two years later, they sold that for 4.2 billion to Flutter. Um, so you can kind of see, you know, when you have a transaction where they're both the buyer and the seller, and they themselves, without any independent valuation, decided that it was 559 million, which was a perfect number for them because it eliminated the other shareholders. And then within two years, they sold it for 4.2 billion, even without knowing anything else you would probably say that there's something very suspicious there. And, and you know, you can actually, you know, we, we have filed a case, it's public. You can see really the details on it. Uh, but even in those like headline factors, you can say something's not. Yeah. Yeah, that's scary stuff. I'm sorry you had to go through that, but hopefully hopefully it works out. Is the, is the case still ongoing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. we're in the uh, commercial division of the uh, New York uh, New York court. Well, good luck with that. Those that's the unfortunate reality sometimes of, you know, disputes between founders and boards and shareholders and all that kind of stuff. Things can happen. Things can happen. This is fairly rare. You know, like there obviously there are disputes, um, but it is very rare that you have a company that's as successful as Fangio, um, that something like this happens. And, and yeah. you know, that's like I don't want people to think, oh my God, this is what investors do all the time. Certainly there are sharp practices. 
but this is this is something like this is fairly rare. Yeah. Well, I'm eager to get to your next venture then, you know, your, 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 I should say one of your current ventures, Starstock. I know you've done a few other things along the way as well, being a, being a serial entrepreneur. But Starstock really interests me because it seems like you've taken some of the ideas from some of those earlier companies that you started and, and, and kind of applied them over to the sports card market. You really thought about the sports card market differently and how could trading cards be more of a real-time a stock exchange or, you know, a real-time marketplace. And, and that's, that's kind of, I think how Starstock was born. Tell me, tell me about the founding story there. Yeah, absolutely. So like, I don't have a background in trading cards, uh, like prior to the summer of 2019, I don't think I really even knew people bought them anymore. <laughs> I was uh, totally ignorant of them. And it was my co-founder, Scott and uh, Mike, Scott Greenberg, Mike Kachera, who were collectors. Um, we used to go for lunch regularly and I, I remember it sort of coming up that they were buying them and I was like, really? And then I remember asking the question, which I'd always been interested. I said, well, so you're telling me that if a player does well, his card value goes up. <laughs> and they're like, they was like the dumbest question ever because it's, it's obviously yes. And I was like, well, that's incredible because they're, then we can make an athlete stock market, something that's always fascinated me. Like, why can't I you know, invest in a player that, um, that I think is really good and, and be able to like ride that, you know, that ride that boom. Everyone, you know, everyone wants to look at rookies and say, this guy's going to be great. This guy's going to be terrible. And why can't I do that? And they were like, well, you can with cards. And so I was like, this is great. So I go off to eBay. I spent a long time trying to figure out, well, what about this card? Why is this not, you know, why wouldn't I buy this one or that one? Uh, how do I find out what price they go for? And and then the, this stage of like, why am I having to deal with bubble wrap? Like it just this whole kind of process of trying to learn cards and then having to deal with like, and then when I get the card, I'm like, and you know, it's like damaged or it's like not of the quality that I, you know, want. And so, you know, that sort of whole painful process. And, and then I just was like with uh, Mike and Scott, I'm like, how can we make this easier? Right. This is really hard. And, and um, when we sort of try to get other people into it, it was just too hard. Um, and so that was really the idea behind Starstock. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. Uh, anyone new getting into the sports card hobby, there is a big learning curve. And, you know, for people wanting to get in, obviously there's been a flood of people getting into it over the last few years. Some collectors who, you know, want to get back into the collecting and, and a lot of investors, people who, you know, watch my shows and that type of thing. But that's, that's, you know, they, getting in and understanding, hey, what do I invest in? How do I make sure I'm not getting ripped off? You know, what, which cards are most likely to go up the most? It's not as simple as just saying, I think Zion Williamson's a good investment. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's, that's a real pain. So a lot of great startups are founded on the notion of solving a pain for customers. And I would say that that is a true, very real pain in the market, that you've got people wanting to put their money in to back players who they think are gonna be successful in the long run, and they wanna see their money increase as that player's success happens. That's a concept that a lot of people wanna buy into, yet the pain of understanding the individual cards to invest in and ensure you're getting the right price and all that type of stuff was really was really difficult. So that's how the Starstock solution fit in right there, right? And then Starstock actually, in my experience, is kind of an unusual company in that we visualized this in the summer of 2019. We launched it, I think, of April last year. 
and the product and then the product today is pretty much exactly what we visualized like some small tweaks but it it was one of the few companies I've ever worked on where like it was what we visualized it would be and you know and our vision kind of was seemed to be about right um it sort of worked the way we'd expect it would and uh and, and which is kind of exceptional I don't think that happens that often yeah, it doesn't. Uh, you know, you, I've, I, I've had it happen a couple of times and I've had it happen the other way a whole bunch of times, as I'm sure you have as well, uh, where your original vision has to be pivoted, you know, several times, iterated upon. But you're right, Starstock, I, I, from the very beginning, and we talked about the concepts uh, for Starstock before you guys ever got anywhere close to launch. I think back when you were just still in the conceptual stage. And the way that you explained it to me back then, which I, I loved the concept, and, and here we are today, and you've been operating now for a year. You're right at your one-year anniversary, I think. And uh, it's, the, it's, it's largely that concept played out. But I'm sure there have been challenges along the way. I know, uh, you know from talking to Scott that there's been issues at times getting enough inventory in to meet demand. And what, what, what have been the biggest challenges you've had to come growing Starstock? So... Inventory, uh, like d demand forecasting has been the big one. So at the start, like we couldn't get any of the Sanders cards, right? Like we, I think the very first time we had to pay people to give us cards, <laughs> it was that bad and that didn't last long. Then we basically made it free and said, like, we're, we've got a team that is, you know, is going to ingest the cards and put them on the platform and that worked fine. And we scaled up the team. And then in late December, it went insane. Like we went from like getting about, I don't know, 10,000 cards a week to getting like, I think at our peak, 80,000. And so we wow. go up like 8X. Um, and so like we're basically, and then we basically started to build up this huge backlog. And that was really painful because before we were getting cards in within one to two weeks. Now we're up to about eight weeks um, and that sort of, you know, we know that's really frustrating for users, it's really frustrating for us. We keep ramping our team. Um, and so that's been a real challenge. I think we now have something like 30 people uh, working on it. Uh, we're getting the backlog down. So fast pass is really within a week. Um, and then normal cards, it is up to about eight weeks, but actually that number is gonna come down, we think pretty rapidly over the next couple of weeks. But that's been, probably one of the biggest things, the, the biggest headache over the last 12 months. Well, you and for everybody else in the sports card industry, I mean, PSA, all the grading companies, it seems like, you know, backlog is perhaps the word of the sports card industry for the year 2021. Um, it's incredible. But, you know, I see it as a sign of the overall strength of the sports card hobby. I mean, the fact that you've got obviously the leading grading company, PSA, that's literally shutting its doors for three months because it can't handle demand, which is something that I have never heard of a company doing. Like we are turning off sales, turning off new customers, none of them for three months because we can't keep up with demand. I've not heard of that. Yet here we are in the sports card hobby and that's happening around us. So to me, that is a sign of just the, the strength and the heat of the hobby. How, how, do, how do you reflect upon that? So um, I think that's absolutely true. I think, and, and certainly I feel for us, and I hope for PSA, this is just due to like a, a shift. And, you know, once they, you know, once they get to the summer, they're going to be in a position to be able to process a lot more cards. Certainly we've had that shift. 
Um, and we're now in a position where we're processing a lot more cards. And so it's, it's just been this shift. And, and, and I think we're, we're getting on top of it and I hope that they're getting on top of it, but you know, it, it definitely is a good sign. It shows there's the, the hobby is vibrant. There's tons of demand. Um, and so we just need to, you know, hire up and, and be able to make that shift. Yeah. And so are you guys, you mentioned you're now up to like 30 people processing the cards. I mean, I know you recently raised a fundraising round. Is that to continue to scale? What do you see the next year at Starstock being like? It's, you know, and when you go out to pitch investors, you know, they could, there's nothing they love more than like genuinely need this money in order to like keep up the demand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what we were raising for. Like we need people to be able to like open boxes and, and get them on the platform. Um, and so that's what we did. And we raised 8 million from Dreesen Horowitz, uh, which is an incredible investor. Um, arguably one of the best or the best in Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, that's basically allowing us to scale up the team and continue to like improve the product. Um, like for example, we don't have a native app at the moment. We would love to have one, but the product on the website is already very rich. So it's it's not an easy, it's not an easy task to, to build that native one. And so we, we want to have that in market so people can track their, track, buy and track their cards on that platform. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's exciting though. Congratulations on the fundraise and you're right. Uh, pitching investors, you've, you've got, in my opinion, and this is, you know, good advice for anyone out there who's, who's trying to start new products. In my opinion, you got two points in time when you can really pitch investors. It is either pre pre pre-release pre-product release when you've already got something in the building process but you need the capital to really be able to hit the market and get this out to market and everything like that. Or once you're having you know, success with scale and you need the money to be able to keep up with demand and continue to keep up on a traction path, in between the two points is a really bad time to go ask for money. Because if you've got your product out on the market, it's not yet getting a ton of traction. And then you have to go ask investors for money they're going to be like, uh, you know, your product's out. Why is it not working? Because if it, you know, so, so, you know, either ask early or ask during when you asked, which is the ultimate time to ask, which is when you're scaling and the money's really going to help you grow. There, there, there's a third time that I find they like you to give you money is when you don't need it. <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a few of those and you're like, yeah, we don't need it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I've had pages before when we didn't need it. Yeah, that's what they, every 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 banker uh, offers you an umbrella on a sunny day, right? Isn't? <laughs> yeah, I love your point about how more and more money is going to get shift into alternative assets over time. I completely agree with that, and I think there's a lot of runway there, and that's one of those things that keeps me very bullish on the long term of the of sports card collecting and sports card investing, as as well as other forms of investing in collectibles. You know, there are probably a lot of people watching, though, that would say, well, over the past couple of months, the sports card hobby has cooled off. Prices have started to dip. You know, modern cards haven't haven't really been doing a whole lot. And some of the iconic cards have slid back to back to earth. To me, you know, you're looking at a very short short term correction period. And if you zoom out, you're looking at a very, very long term period of growth. To me, you know, you're, you're, we're going to get back in that growth cycle again sometime soon. If you look at the long view, what what is your perspective on kind of where the market is today, and you know where the market might be a year or two years or more from now? 
Yeah, no, it's a really good point. It's something that we spend a long time looking at and uh, also talking to our investor about because what I've discovered is that it's very, our volumes are very driven by pricing. So in, in uh, December, January, we saw a huge surge in interest because uh, people were buying because everything was going up. And then when prices start dropping, it sort of demand really drops. Um, and the way I look at it is this is going to be, there's going to be a lot of price volatility. And actually, um, when it was when it goes up really quickly, it somewhat gets me nervous because we shouldn't expect like 3x increase in, you know, this space of months or even weeks um, for the broader market. Like that's, if it does that, then we should fully expect it to go down a similar rate, right? Um, if you think of the card category as a whole, like if it appreciated by like 10% a year, that would be an incredible investment, right? If you had just invest in everything without any kind of viewpoint. It also, that price volatility creates a little bit of a challenge, which is, you know, for example, Zion's having an incredible season and his card's down, what, 40%, 30%? Right. Uh, since the start of the season. And so when we sort of thought we want to create an athlete stock market and you go, okay, I think Zion's going to be incredible. No, <laughs> you weren't the only one. You're not like, you know, that's not an amazing insight. But if you were saying he's going to have like an incredible season and then you're down 30%, doesn't sort of feel right, you know, because because you're really just buying the market. You want really him relative to the market. He's actually overperformed the market, but the market's sort of dropped by so much over that period. And so, you know, we would prefer, you know, we believe there will be price volatility. Um, we actually don't get too excited about when market when the market's going up, or we try not to, because we don't think that prices doubling over a period of months is very sustainable. Um, we think that, you know, solid asset in inflation across the market of like, if it was above eight, to, you know, in the sort of eight to 12% per year, eight to 15%, that would be great. There's gonna be price volatility. And so we should never be carried away whenever it's going up. And we also shouldn't get too concerned when it's going down because we sort of feel good long-term that this is a good investment. And then on top of that, we also feel that it should be there for the investor. The, the outsized return should come from your knowledge and for your ability to pick players that are, you know, undervalued. And like the grass, the group best one for baseball is Otani. Like, you know, you were picking up his PSA tens for $50 prior to the start of the season. And they're now going for what, 120. Um, you know, if you could spot that he was going to have an incredible season, that he was this generational player, then you know then you were making a great pick and you're getting rewarded for that that's kind of what we sort of envisage when we set out to build this product that we're rewarding those people who have that real insight that then can buy and get the the price uh, increase from from their insight as opposed to the broader marketing yeah i agree i think the the closer that card prices of of these ultra modern players can correlate to their actual performance certainly going to be better for you i think it's good for the hobby overall you know it, it it's great to be able to see a you know trey young pop off for for 50 points and then to be able to see his cards up the next day as a result and you know the market simply got a little bit overheated uh, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. And so you've got the general market cooling off that is is kind of overriding, you know, the performance of individual players. I agree that that's not great for anybody. 
And but it but but it's a it's a direct symptom of the fact that the market went up so much, such incredible incredible gains uh, for stretches of time there. And so it sounds like slow but slow but steady is the ultimate. Is that right? One good thing I'd say about the price volatility is it does pull people into the market. Like people come in. I've seen so many people that came in during the price bubble because they were like, wow, you know, I could double my money. And then they actually find that even here's the way I ask people, like, do you, would you still love it if the price that it halved? And lots of those people still are really stuck around in the hobby. They still find it tons of fun. And they're like, look, we'd see the prices are dropping and that kind of sucks. But they actually just love collecting cards. And that's a great sign. Um, yeah. there, there is other markets that I've seen, like NFTs is a great example. I bought a bunch of NFTs and, and some of them I really love. And there's some of them that I realized I was just flipping them. And I decided just to sell them all because I was like, you know what, price is dropping. I don't really feel that I love them. And so it made me think about and some of the ones that I love is I just really love the artist. And I sort of feel I'm just going to keep this forever. Or I think this artist is going to be, you know, appreciated more in future as opposed to just sort of trying to flip stuff for money. So I think the price volatility does help bring people in. And then they find that they actually really like the hobby. So let's talk about NFTs since you brought those up. There's obviously a lot of sports-related NFT projects that have launched recently, and I'm sure we're going to see a whole lot more in the months ahead. Do you think uh, people kind of chasing after these various NFT launches is that hurting the sports card market? And how do how could NFT how are how are NFTs going to grow in the future compared to the sports card market? In your opinion, um. I, you know, we didn't, we haven't seen anything in terms of it hurting it. It may be sort of the card market lost a little bit of the buzz, you know, because everyone was talking about NFTs instead of, whereas you know, a month before they were talking about cards. But, you know, we sort of saw among the people who were buyers in our site, it didn't really feel. And I, you know, we didn't feel that there was a huge crossover, maybe like 10 to 15% of people were crossing over. Um, and some of those were like, I'm all NFTs. Um, I don't, and I, I don't think we've seen many people said, I'm getting all out of cards and I'm getting it. And like, no one. And we've got some, you know, really big sellers on our, on our platform. None of them have said, I'm getting out of cards and getting into NFTs. You know, that's, that's a good sign. Um, I think I'm kind of bullish on both markets, but I, for sort of different reasons, I'm bullish on NFTs. I'm probably more bullish on the art NFTs than I am on sports. Um, and the reason I am is that I feel that art gives you a direct connection to the artist. Whereas um, I'm not really sure I have that affinity with the sports ones that I've made. Um, that could change. Now, if there, you know, if it was a collaboration between the athlete and the artist, that could be interesting. Um, but I certainly like, you know, I've sold all my sports NFTs, but I've kept some of the art ones. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I, I, I I, think we are in kind of such an early innings. We just don't know how it really is going to evolve. And I, you know, I, I definitely saw a top shot. I sort of felt like when you have this rate of price inflation, you're going to have the back end is going to be equally impressive in a bad way. It's going to be pretty brutal. And it was. I think they need to go through a number of cycles before they kind of find their price. Um, and then we've got to find out how many of those people are, who are flippers 
really are collectors. You know, many of those people like came in for the quick flip, but then they love it so much that even though they might be losing money on it, that they still want to collect because they really love it. Um, yeah. So that's going to figure it out. And then the last thing I'd say about NFTs is one of the things that has not really been solved for NFTs is how do you share and display them, um, mm -hmm. both in the real world and then in the virtual world as well. Um, with cards, kind of know how I do that. Um, uh, but with, you know, with NFTs, they're kind of a little buried. You know, I've got my collection, but it's on a website. I sometimes send it to some people, but I really would love to be able to like make them more public and, you know, put them in a picture frame or, or even display. And some people are experimenting with um, virtual galleries. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody sent me their virtual gallery the other day and it was pretty cool. Like you can walk around the gallery and you can see all his NFTs. Uh, so, but I think it need, there needs to be more work there. It's going to be exciting to see what the future holds in that area for sure. Yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating. We're, we're, we're living in a very fascinating time right now in this alternative asset space. And it's going to be it's going to be wonderful to see how all of it all of it plays out. Uh, before we get you out of here, Nigel, I'd love to know what is the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Oh, best business advice. Um, I don't know if I've received it or I've discovered it, but um, like the most, the very most important thing is, you know, really choosing who you work with, um, like who you work with as founders, as you grow a company, who you choose joins your team. Um, that's really more important than anything else of, than, you know, what you do or uh, what terms you work under. Because if you work with really high quality people who have high integrity and are fun to work with, you're going to be successful. Like that's kind of like, and you're going to be, even if your project is a failure, you're going to feel good about it because you spent quality time with other people who, you know, pushed you and kind of gave you insight. So that's kind of what I've always sort of come back to. Um, I'm with Fangio. I'm still friends with all my co-founders, um, even though we've now gone on generally in our separate directions. Um, and I'm really proud of that. Not all uh, founder groups make it through that. And, you know, like I've built incredible teams uh, like at Fangio and then since then, and I'm still in contact with a lot of those people. Um, and that's to me has been enormously rewarding. And many of those have gone on and started other companies and, uh, and I've either supported them or helped them get new jobs. So that's the most important thing to me, which is, you know, focus on who you work with and, and focus on trying to help them and, and kind of take it from there. Yeah, that's awesome. And for anyone new listening who, who may be trying to launch a product of their own, if you could kind of go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice when you were starting off with your first product launch at FanDuel, what, what might you tell yourself back then that, that might help some folks out there in the audience today? <laughs> expect it not to work <laughs> I, honestly that's probably the biggest one it's like you know i've i've i'm advised quite a lot of entrepreneurs and uh they come to me and they're like some of them are like they're pretty open they're quite distressed and things aren't working and they're co they're falling out of their co-founder and i always have to say to them, like this is totally normal right and and when things are going really well for them I always say to them, and I'm kind of a bit of a downer on them. I'm like, it's great. It's going really well. This is not going to last. Like, you know, and, and, and they, they're like, wait a second. I've just raised like, you know, we haven't even built a product and we've just raised $8 million. And, you know, we've got the best investors want to invest is a hundred million. And I'm like, this will not last. 
Um, and I'm like, look, just like enjoy it, but accept that this will not last. And then when I, when the things go really bad, I remind them and I say, remember I told you they were not going to last. They haven't lasted, but I'll, I'll tell you what else, this difficult period you will get through. Um, and, you know, understand that, you know, you're going to everyone, every founder goes through this difficult period. You know, when your founder co-founder quits and customers don't want to buy your product and you're having team issues, you get through that and, you know, and, and, and you'll get back to, you know, the better place. Absolutely. Yeah. Business. I, I tell new entrepreneurs, if you're doing it well, it's two steps forward and one step back. Uh, if you're not doing it well, then it's like two steps forward or two steps back or three steps back, you know, for every step forward. Uh, but, but it's very rare that you get to take three steps forward without taking any steps back, you know, two steps forward and a step back. That's actually a decent, you know, pattern to run on. So. Yeah. Now there's a, I read the story. There's a book about Instagram. It is like the worst book ever because like, you know, they launch it, they have 50,000 downloads in day one, you know, they, everything like it's just all good. Right. And then, you know, within 12 months, they sell for half a billion dollars. And I'm like, this is this is like a this is like a book about how I won the lottery. Like, smart. like yes. you know, yeah, credit to Kevin Sestrom and his co-founder. Yeah. They're smart guys and they built an amazing product. But startup life is not like that. Uh, and I was like, the book was like so boring. I didn't give up halfway through. I'm like, I'm not learning anything here. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And you learn more from the failures for sure. For sure. Hey, Nigel, this has been wonderful. Thanks for joining the owner suite. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us in the owner suite. Please click subscribe if you enjoyed the conversation and leave a review to help spread the word. Follow Jeff on Twitter and Instagram at Jeff352. And check out Jeff's growth agency, 352, at growwith352.com. See you next time in the owner suite.